Scripture today is coming from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though he had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, and not to men, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, our brothers, our labor and toil, for we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the gifts of your word. We pray right now that you would speak loud and clear. So many ways this is a passage that deals with the motives and desires of our hearts. And we thank you, God, that you've given us your word to search and know our hearts, not that we might experience an exercise in discouragement, condemnation, but that your kindness would lead us to repentance and you would equip us to walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing you in every way. So bless this preaching of your word. Lord, we also pray for Uh, Two other churches in our area, I pray for Mike Windley, Friendship Baptist off Newby's Bridge. I ask that you would give strength to that man's heart. That as he preaches your word, he would not feel like a service provider, but as one who is being fed by the great shepherd, even as he is seeking to feed your sheep. And then Lord, I thank you for providing uh, a new pastor for Evergreen Community Church. Thank you for Robert Barnes. So good to meet him this week. I I pray that you would give him humility and courage and compassion for the sheep in that church. I, I pray that transition would be a smooth one and that they would not lose any ground in their faithfulness to the mission of the gospel. Help them as they're preparing for a building project. Give him much wisdom, Lord. We pray that you would grow and increase and add to those two congregations, for your glory in this city. Amen. Well, it's good to be back in 1 Thessalonians. We weren't in there long before we had a pause, and Josh, thank you again for jumping in last Sunday. So kind of you, buddy. So kind of you. I'm grateful to preach and serve in a church where you don't treat what is about to happen right now as a performance. Uh, But we gather together as a family to hear from the Lord, and there are Sundays he does that in ways we anticipate and expect, and there are Sundays he does that in ways that surprise us. So I'm grateful for not just Josh's faith, but your faith to listen to God with him. The, The longer I try to follow Jesus, friends, the more I realize that the great challenge of the Christian life is not so much knowing what is right, but doing what is right. And doing it for a long period of time and not giving up even when it's hard. Make sense? 
Don't, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying in that. Because there are times following Jesus feels easy. There are times, to borrow the metaphor, it's as though there's a spiritual wind at your back. So your heart is awake to the goodness and mercy of the Lord. Faith is beating strong. Love and good works are just abounding. You feel like good fruit's kind of flowing out of you in every which way you look. Obedience is a joy. But there are many times that following Jesus is really hard. And it feels hard especially when it comes to our relationships with other people. So to make a few physical comparisons, doing what you know God wants you to do in a relationship with another person feels like going to climb old rag this afternoon in the blazing heat of the sun or swimming upstream in the James River after a big rain. I've done or tried all these things, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Or, my personal favorite, or not, trying to run through a headwind on the Belvedere Bridge when you're about mile 18 in the Richmond Marathon. You, you know what you're trying to do, but nothing inside of you wants to do it. Maybe you feel like that in a relationship in your life right now. You, you know what you should do or say. Maybe you've done it before. Maybe you've done it a lot. But nothing inside of you wants to do it again. You're tired. You're really tired. And, and your resolve to keep going is failing. Your, your strength, so to speak, to endure in this relationship, in doing what you know God wants you to do, that strength feels like it's on life support. And it was great while it lasted, but, but the last three weeks, or the last three months, or the last three decades have taken their toll on you. And the forces of opposition around you and inside of you and maybe even staring in your face across the dinner table seem to grow stronger, not weaker. And as Hebrews 10.36 says, you, my friend, have need of endurance. Endurance in following Jesus. Endurance in doing what's right in your relationships with other people and endurance in the work of Christian ministry. But I say all that very aware that not all of you listening to me are Christians. Some of you are wrestling with Christianity. Uh, You aren't sure where you stand with Jesus. You you don't know, if you're honest, if if you want to trust and obey him. The, The hypocrisy that you've seen in the church at large and, and maybe in some individual professing Christians you've known really troubles you. And, and in your mind, Christians should quit trying to tell other people what to do in their relationships and start applying a little of their own counsel to themselves. Maybe the friend who brought you this morning or you came with is one of the first Christian people you've ever known who actually seems to practice what they preach. We're going to talk about that this morning. What does enduring integrity in our relationships with other people as Christians look like? Especially in situations where doing what's right is hard, not easy. And so if you're a non-Christian friend listening to me, please pay attention today. Why? Because I do not want you to reject Jesus because you see hypocrisy in his people. That would be a travesty. You need to consider Jesus' claims for yourself. Don't don't give me the hypocrisy excuse. And if I could be so bold, you too are a hypocrite. Because like me, we live in the gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. So listen carefully. Because we're going to talk about how God calls and empowers us to endure in doing what is right, fulfilling the mission he's given us in our relationships with other people. And if you think that you have it hard, you know, some of you are listening to me right now thinking, man, oh man, he has no idea how hard this relationship is. Well, I want you to think with me about the Apostle Paul. Lest you think you are unusual, if you think following Jesus is hard... The suffering and the shameful treatment this guy experienced and his companions in the Roman city of Philippi in the middle of the first century 
He actually references this in verse 2 of chapter 2, if you have your Bible open. It wasn't a joke. Because in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they were Silvanus, another name for Silas, they come into Philippi, they start telling people about Jesus, right? The good news of what Jesus has done through his life, his death, his resurrection, to save mankind from the wrath of God, judgment of God. And before too long, the city magistrates, think the local police, who were supposed to protect Paul as a Roman citizen, listen to what they did, quote, they tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. No due process, no justice, no trial, no no YouTube to summon the anger of the masses to get you out of there. The parade of public persecution just followed Paul and his companions wherever they go. It's just like a snake following the leader, the leader. And it followed them to Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 2, which is the, the place where Paul preached the gospel, started a church, and is now writing this letter. He's writing it to the Thessalonians. Listen to how that work got started. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Not to thank them for coming. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, that's interesting, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Why is they're preaching the truth, even in their anger? I, but here's the question. How would all of that affect your desire to keep going. To keep speaking. To keep loving. And doing what God told him to do in his relationships. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 2. Here's how it affected Paul. His friends, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, no joke. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Now look, where? In the midst of much conflict. I mean, I read that and I say, say what? I mean, what, what kind of twisted logic produces bold endurance in the work of ministry when following the Lord continues to exact such a tremendous physical and emotional and psychological toll on a man? When verses 3 to 12, Paul gives us the answer. How did he endure doing what was right, work of Christian ministry and his relationships with other people? But, but his answer, I'm convinced, doesn't just hold true for first century frontier missions apostles, but for the people of God in every age who are struggling to endure. So here's the answer, in a, in a sense. How, how do we endure work of Christian ministry, doing what's right in our relationships with other people? Endurance in the work of ministry is sustained by a supreme desire to please the Lord through our ministry. In other words, there's a relationship, there's a connection between endurance in ministry and your motivation for ministry. They're connected. There's a connection between whether you keep going or not and why you are doing it in the first place. And Paul and Savannah and Timothy, think of it this way, they knew it wasn't just enough to get busy with doing the right things. 
They knew they were only going to endure if they were doing them for the right reasons. That's what we're going to talk about. Point number one, this hard work of enduring, doing what's right in relationships and Christian ministry. Point one, your motivation matters. Your motivation, Christian friend, it matters. So after reminding the Thessalonians in verse 2 of the, the reality of their persistent boldness, Paul and his company, they pivot in verse 3, look there, to explain the ground of their endurance. So in verse 2, if he says, hey guys, check it out, we had boldness in conflict. What? In verse 3, he says, well, here's why. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring, it's motivation language, from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He's saying at least two really important things here. First, remember Thessalonians, when we were urging you to trust and obey Jesus, we weren't doing that because we were trying to sell you a pack of lies. Our message is true. Our motives are pure. Our methods are honorable. Second, recognize Thessalonians, listen to this, that it is precisely the character of our message and our motives, and our methods, that's exactly that that made us bold and sustained us in doing the work God called us to do in our relationship with you guys. The character of our message, the character of our motives, the character of our method. There's a lot of things missing from that list. What, what do we tend to focus on? Where, where do we tend to look be, be honest, to decide whether or not we're going to keep going or call it quits in a hard relationship, in a hard situation, with, with a friend, a family member, a spouse, someone that we know, we know God wants us to re- relate to them in a certain way, but oh, do I keep going? Do I quit? I don't know. Let's try to decide. Let me weigh some things. What do we weigh? One, we weigh how people initially respond to us right? Do they like what I'm saying to them or not? Second, we focus on whether people have changed. Am I going to quit? Am I going to keep going? Quit or keep going? Well, let's consider it. Is there anything that I have said in the last three decades of this marriage that gives me any remote confidence, any visible fruit, anyone, anyone, Bueller, that helps me know that if I keep on in this, change will happen? That's what we ask, and those aren't bad questions to ask, okay? So, so don't hear me slamming those things. Paul and his co-workers, they rejoiced in chapter 1, right? They rejoiced over the way the Thessalonians responded initially to their proclamation of the gospel and the obedience of faith they observed in their lives as a result of that work. They thanked God for that stuff. It was real. But in chapter 2, when it came time to explain why they persevered, why they endured, why, why they remained bold. That's the word he uses in, in doing what God had called him to do in Philippi, Thessalonica. Notice Paul doesn't say anything about the initial response to his ministry or the visible fruit from his ministry. That's conspicuously absent. What, what does he say? What, where does he point? He points to the truthfulness of his message, the purity of his motives, the character of his methods. Translation, are we saying what is true? Yes. Are we saying it for the right reasons? Yes. Are we saying it in the right way? Yes. If endurance and boldness in Christian ministry are like making a cake or baking something, those three things are the ingredients that make the cake. Your message your motives, your methods. And, and I think, just considering this now for two weeks, that it's easy to look at Paul's boldness in ministry in the midst of suffering and kind of process it like this. Yeah, but that was the Apostle Paul. That was Paul. He was just one of those unusual guys with a really bold personality. You know what I'm talking about? Like the guys who walk in a room and, hey, people! I mean, not to be this sort of attention, but check it out. 
bold guy. He probably loved talking to people. Everybody laughed at his jokes. You know, he's, he's always saying it like it is and just doesn't give a rip what people think. And he probably has this like super high pain and criticism tolerance. He probably loves getting mocked online. He's just one of those weird people. I mean, if that's not enough, if it's not just his personality, he saw the risen Christ for crying out loud. And he owed God big time because he was trying to kill Christians before God made him one. So Paul had a lot going in his favor to make the guy bold. That's not my personality. That's not my background. That's not my gifting. I've tried to do the right thing. I've tried to say the right thing. I've done it over and over and over again for years, but I just can't keep going anymore. I'm not that guy. Better men or women probably could, not me. They don't like what I'm saying. They're not changing because of my influence. I quit. Friend, if you hear nothing else this morning, remember this. Enduring in Christian ministry is not a personality thing. It's not a how are people responding thing, nor is it even a What visible fruit do I see? It's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. It's sustained by a singular desire, a supreme and ruling desire to please the Lord. That's what sustains. So the truthfulness of their message is is woven all throughout these verses. The the, the main focus, however, is on the purity of their motives, that's verses 4 to 6, and the integrity of their methods, that's verses 7 to 12. But I think understanding verse 4 is the key to understanding the whole. So look there with me. Again, under this point, your motivation matters. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. I hope I don't have to convince you that deep within the human heart, there is an insidious desire for the approval and esteem of men. And if we're being honest, most of us want people to like us. We, we want people to, to nod their head affirmingly when we speak. We, we want to know that the, the opinions that matter most to us spouse, friends, family, colleagues, that they support our actions. We, we care about the judgments of our friends. And in one sense, I hope you realize that's not an entirely bad thing. Why not? Romans 12, verse 17. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought. So if you're a Christian, what's Paul saying? You should want the people around you to experience the love and care of God through your words and deeds. (laughs) Caring about that is good, okay? You don't want to bring the name of Christ into disrepute, to, to trample his glory in the dust through your hypocrisy. It's good to want the former and hate the latter, okay? Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Here's the problem. The problem is when a good desire to serve people twists into a governing ambition to please them such that you are more concerned about what people think of you instead of what God thinks of you. That's the problem. Whatever will make her happy. Whatever will make him like you or or cause that friend to tell her friends how supportive and loving and accepting you are. 
It's, it's not like pleasing God is unimportant to you. You know it's important. You would answer yes on a test. You say it is, but, but if you're honest, what God thinks doesn't take up a fraction of your brain space. Your, your heart and your mind are like an echo chamber for all the voices of men. I can talk like that because I know what that feels like. And if that's the case, friend, if, if you can tell there's more, more concern, more anxiety, more attention, more thought time devoted to pleasing men than to pleasing God, or if you've been at that game so long that it feels like pleasing God is pleasing men, then you will never endure in the hardship of Christian ministry or marriage or friendship or church membership or any other relationship in doing what's right with other people. You won't endure. Listen, not because you have a codependency problem and need to stop apologizing for yourself, but because you have an idolatry problem and you need to repent. You need to stop worshiping men instead of worshiping God. So, I'll take the quietness in here as a sense that you know what I'm talking about. Because I certainly feel this. So I then ask, how do we know if we're living to please men in our relationships instead of pleasing God? How do we know that? How do we know, figure out where we're doing that in our relationships? Well, well, here's where I think it really helps to look at the character of our ministry. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul and company lay out the basic choice, right? What, what's the basic choice, especially verse 4? Please men or please God? Please men, please God. Two choices. Big idea. Your motivation matters. Okay, then they double-click on each one of those things in the rest of the passage. So verses 5 to 6 are about what pleasing men look like in action. And verses 7 and 12 are about what pleasing God looks like in action. So we're going to linger on verses 5 and 6 for a little while. What's, what's pleasing men look like in action? And then we're going to end by, by coming back to take a closer look at verse 4. Why our motivation matters. And then next Sunday, we're going to come back to verses 7 to 12. There's just so much here. We've now got a two-parter. Okay? So point one was, our motivation matters. Whether or not you'll endure. Pleasing men, will endure. Pleasing God, will endure. Point two, pleasing men, pleasing man, is the problem. It's the problem. So look at verses 5 and 6. They, they linger here on what speaking to please men, the wrong motivation for Christian ministry, looks like in action. Why, why are they doing that? It's because they want the Thessalonians to recognize, hey, you know what? We saw none of that bad fruit when Paul and his friends were, were doing ministry among us. That must be a good sign that they were speaking to us to please the Lord. And we should trust and obey what they said as a result. That's his goal here. So if, if pleasing man is the symptom, what we wrongly fall into doing in the relationships and ministry God's called us to, then there are three categories in verses 5 and 6 that illustrate some of the things we're chasing. Maybe the underlying idols of the heart that make us want to speak to please men instead of wanting to speak to please God. So here's the first one. We speak to please men because we want power. Look at verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. What is flattery? What's flattery? I think it's, you could say it's exaggerating what is good about someone or flat out saying they're good when they're actually not right? In order to gain influence or control in their life and in particular how they relate to you and what they think about you. So a flatterer isn't interested in loving people, really. 
A flatterer is interested in using their words to control and influence how people respond to them. So what's true is irrelevant. What works is what matters. That's flattery. And I think that's really easy to do in marriage. Sure, honey. Whatever you want. Just tell me whatever you want. I'll do it. What do you want? Is there a place to lay down your preferences and die to self in a marriage? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's a form of spouse pleasing that belies a deeper issue. The real issue, in many cases, is you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to upset the peace. You know you should confront their behavior. You know you should challenge their decision. You know you should lovingly say some things that are true but are hard. But you don't. So could your silence be a product of of fear? Maybe if I say something, they're going to, you know, beat me over the head with a rolling pen? Well, in some cases, yes. And though we may laugh at that, friends, uh, spousal abuse is a grievous problem and sin. So in many cases, yes, fear keeps people silent, and sadly so. But, but in other cases, sometimes our are silent flattery. You know such a thing exists? Silent flattery. Saying whatever will make our spouse feel good about themselves, leave us alone and think we're amazing, is actually an attempt to control the relationship. To control the level of conflict. Whatever will give you a measure of power over the way your spouse acts or responds is exactly what you do. You can do that actively by yelling and screaming at them, or you can do that passively through silent flattery. You don't have to be Napoleon to fall into that trap, okay? It's, it's easy to speak to please men because we want some kind of power over them. Second, we speak to please man because we want wealth. Look at verse 5. For we never came with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Now, let's just get this part out of the way so it doesn't distract us from being convicted by the Spirit of God, okay? It's not hard to find professing Christian ministers on TV who seem more like a dishonest salesman. To be quite frank, they say it's all about Jesus, but really it's all about the money. At least that becomes clear eventually. But you don't have to be on TV to fall into that trap. You don't. So I I was talking with a pastor friend recently who told me about a situation where another pastor he knew refused to confront a brother to say a hard thing, keep on doing it, enduring, who was a member of their church because he was one of the biggest givers to that church. And that broke my heart because it showed me that that man cared more about the church budget than his soul. And so there's a reason I don't read through all of the giving statements we send out at the end of the year. I I want to avoid the slightest temptation to favoritism. Okay, speaking as a pastor to, to curry favor with the wealthy instead of the poor under the pretext of watching out for the church budget. Here's why I don't do that, okay? Brothers and sisters, God owns everything. He owns everything, okay? He'll provide for me. He'll provide for this church. He'll provide for you if we're willing to trust him. But but this temptation to please men because we want wealth isn't unique or limited to the church and the people leading it, okay? The same thing can happen to a Christian in the workplace. What? Yeah. So maybe you won't be quite so bold with your boss or with a high-dollar client as you are with a coworker or a subordinate in talking about Jesus because, you know, 
they could fire you. Or they could cut the contract off. Then I wouldn't have a job. Then I couldn't provide for my family. Then I couldn't love Jesus. True, except for the last part. (laughs) All those things could happen. But, But take care, friend, because you don't have to be fantastically wealthy to be consumed with greed. All you have to do is to be controlled by a desire for money, whether you have a little or a lot. Where, where our love for money is greater than our love for God, we will speak to please men, not God. That's his point. Here's a third way we can speak to please men. We can speak to please men because we want fame. Look at verse 6. Power, wealth, and fame. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. And I think of all three, I find this one the most convicting. And let me explain. That there is a type of Christian, see if you can relate to this, who suffers with a, a gnawing and very often consuming hunger to know if they are good enough. To, to know if they're being faithful, if they're, they're being and doing everything they're supposed to be and do. And for you, or me, the very idea of failure is anathema. Why? Because your identity is on the line. Your worth and your value, in your eyes at least, are bound up in your performance. So whether or not you are okay is entirely dependent on whether or not everything you are doing is okay. And of course, by okay, I don't mean average. (laughs) I mean excellent. And practically everything you do, if you're honest, is, is driven by this desire to prove to yourself or others that you measure up and then some. And, and in fact, it's hard for you to just, it's hard for you to describe just how deep that hunger goes in your soul. I mean, some of us are going to the beach in different ways this summer. You ever stood out on a pier at the beach and you can just see those pylons going down like 30, 40, 50 feet if the water's really clear and then they just vanish. That's what that hunger to know Am I good enough? Is like for you. It's that deep. So, where do we turn to get an answer to that question? Am I good enough? Am I sufficient? Two options your evaluation of yourself, other people's evaluation of you. Or, in my case, A personal customized cocktail of both. But either way, right? Who are you seeking glory, honor, and esteem and acclaim from? People, right? Whether yourself or others or or both. I mean, we're in that equation. We read verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. You're a person. We're part of that. So where that internal dynamic is alive and well, who are we speaking to please? Who are we living to please, friend? We're living and speaking to please. We're confronting and writing and talking and not confronting and not writing and not talking and parenting. Fill in the blank to earn praise from ourselves and praise from other people. That's what we're doing. Power, wealth, and fame. Every one of those idols will drive us to relate to other people to please them, not God. And and notice this. If if this isn't already serious enough in your mind, okay, if left unchecked, you realize actually loving people soon becomes impossible. It's impossible. Why? Because you can't genuinely love someone you're trying to please. You can't. You can't help them fall in love with God if you're preoccupied with making them fall in love with you. You can't do both. Everyone around you just becomes a means to another end. A pawn in your pursuit of fulfillment, an opportunity to chase or secure what you really want, 
power or wealth or fame. Pleasing man is a problem. It's the problem. But I don't think that's the hardest point to preach. Because identifying a problem isn't actually that hard. Escaping the temptation? (laughs) That's really hard. Okay? Pleasing man is the problem. Point three, and we'll end with this. Pleasing God is the goal. Pleasing man is the problem. Pleasing God is the goal. So so we're going to come back next Sunday and look closely at the characteristics of a ministry, a way of relating to people that's compelled by a supreme desire to please the Lord. But but I told you earlier we were going to end, but we'll come back to that, by going back to verse 4. Look at verse 4, chapter 2. Because I want us to consider two realities in this verse that, that offer real hope and help in this battle. Okay? First, if you're a Christian, remember that you have been commissioned by God. You've been commissioned by God. What, what do they say? But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Translation, in any relationship, Christian, The God who created you and saved you has entrusted you with a single mission. A single mission, help other people around you follow Jesus by speaking the truth of the gospel and speaking whatever is consistent with the truth of the gospel. You're not a rogue agent. You're not an army of one. You have a commanding officer. You're a soldier under orders of King Jesus himself. King Jesus has given you the unspeakable privilege of being his ambassador of the good news to all the people around you, starting with the people in your home. He's entrusted that to you. And so the the work you're engaged in, the team you're fighting for, the, the gospel ministry you're trying to do with your spouse or with your kids or with your friends or your children or your neighbors, it isn't your ministry. It's been entrusted to you by the king. It's God's work. It's God's mission. It's God's ministry. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we're enlisted in God's cause, not our little glory cause. Don't settle for a cause that falls short of something that worthy. You've been given in Christ Jesus the most glorious mission possible. Don't exchange that for your own fame. You've been commissioned by God. Remember that. That'll give you courage. Second, if you're a Christian, remember you're accountable to God. Commissioned by God, accountable to God. Look back at verse 4. We speak not to please men, but to please God, who test our hearts. You test our hearts. I I think one of the reasons, if I could be so bold, that we are often so dialed in to what other people think about us and what we need to do in order to make them happy or make them give us what we want is that, that we really want to know on some level if what we're doing is right. We're looking for affirmation. We're looking for, am I okay? Am I doing what's right? If you're a Christian, that, that desire will be present in your heart and in a good way because you want to please the Savior who laid down his life for you. That's good. The trouble starts when we try to get a read, here we go, right, on whether we're doing what's right by adding up all the opinions of all the people around us, they equal right. No, not right. Ah! instead of looking to the inerrant and all-sufficient word of God where Jesus tells us if we're right where he reminds us he's the judge where he helps us discern if a particular course of action is wise or unwise So, so think of it this way friend when you die Christian Jesus isn't going to keep you waiting in some heavenly hallway until everyone who knows you best also dies and then bring the panel forward 
Please issue judgment upon Williams. Panel says, no. Why not? Because you're not accountable to them. You're not. They didn't create you. They didn't save you. They're not the judge of the universe. God is. Jesus is. You're you're accountable to him. He's the one who's going to test your heart on the final day. And he's the only one who can entirely search and know your heart on this day. And guess what? Because of Christ Jesus on that final day, when the secrets of the heart are disclosed, each one, every true believer, will receive a commendation from the king. Got to remember that. You're accountable to God. So what do we do with that desire to know whether we're Am I doing what's right? I, I don't know. We pray. We take refuge in the God who tests our hearts. We pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And Jesus, you lead me in the way everlasting. It's, it's as though being commissioned by God pushes us to live to please him from behind and being accountable to God pulls us forward to please him from in front. If you can remember you're commissioned, remember you're accountable, it gets easier to please God in the middle. (laughs) Because enduring in the work of ministry is only sustained by a supreme desire to please the Lord through our ministry. I'll conclude with this and then we're going to sing I think there's a very important final question that I need to answer and leave you with. Some of you are probably saying, okay, Matthew, I get it. If I'm going to endure in Christian ministry, then I have to do all this stuff. I have to live to please God, not to please men. But help me with this, Pastor. Is it even possible to please the Lord? Is that? You're getting so excited on stage about pleasing the Lord. Is that even possible? Is that a thing? He's perfect, I'm not. I mean, by the grace of God, I'm becoming more like him, but I still got a long way to go. Isn't the whole point of the gospel that it's not about whether I'm good enough, that that I can never do enough good things to please the Lord? I mean, even my acts of obedience are are riddled and fragmented with, with sin and mixed motives. Isn't that why we need Jesus? Well, we need Jesus, friends. (laughs) Say it again. We need Jesus, but Jesus doesn't make Paul's ambition to please God an exercise in futility. Why not? Well, the gospel says that because of our sin, you and I can never earn God's love, God's acceptance, God's approval. So what did Jesus do? He died for us so we could be forgiven. He obeyed for us so we could be righteous in the courtroom of heaven. So if your your trust for salvation from sin and death is in Jesus, then God welcomes you for Christ's sake. So does that make every attempt to please the Lord an exercise in legalism? No. No. Not at all. 1 Peter 2, 5. Having been brought near to the Father once and for all through the work of the Son, we now what? Look there. Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It, it means, Christian, that as the Holy Spirit empowers you to speak to please God, not man, God delights in even your littlest baby steps of obedience. Not because your experiential righteousness is perfect, but because it's genuine. It's real. And all that is unholy or unrighteous or impure or mixed motives in it is forgiven for Jesus' sake. That's why the pleasure of God in your obedience, in other words, is not an act of moral compromise on God's part, nor is it an act of make-believe, as if God, sometimes we talk like this, as as if God never actually delights in what you're doing. Even as a Christian, he only delights in what Christ has done for you. No. Well, yes. He delights in what Christ has done for you, 
but he delights in the good fruit that his spirit produces in your life as a result of what Christ has done for you. So, child of God, when you obey, when you speak and act to please him, God, your father, is really and truly and justly pleased with you. Living to please God isn't like a marathon where the finish line is just a mirage. And I've been told to please the Lord, but I just don't know if it's ever going to happen. No. No. You go out there after this message and you speak a word of encouragement and correction and consolation to somebody else in this room because you want to please God and not to earn brownie points with them. God delights in that. Right now. Right now. The gospel doesn't make pleasing God irrelevant. The gospel makes pleasing God possible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have need of endurance. I thank you for a reminder this morning that that endurance in the work of ministry. Is only sustained by a supreme desire to please the Lord through that ministry. Lord, we want to endure in relationships, friendships, but it's hard. It's really hard sometimes. So I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and you would cause us to think and speak and act, not to please men, but to please you. We need your help, and I pray as we sing and then share the Lord's Supper that you would birth a new passion to please the Lord.